Hello and welcome to another live instalment of the Empire of the Cop podcast and what a special one we've got for you here again today. Um, we've got two special guests, Rick Elliott and the Anfield Raps, Neil Atkinson, to discuss their highly anticipated documentary, Jürgen. And we'll be looking specifically, of course, part one, The Challenge. We've also got Peter Kenny-Jones and I'll be your host, Farrell Keeling. Uh, Neil, thanks again for coming on. How are you doing? Very well indeed. Overjoyed to be here, to be honest with you. Uh, very, very <laughs> excited. Uh, good to talk about Jürgen and any other matters that are arising. So thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Oh. Every opportunity. Every opportunity. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a phenomenal documentary. And I'll just leave Pete with the, the first question. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, thank you again for joining us, Neil. And yeah, so obviously we, we've all had a little watch at the first episode. And yeah, every Liverpool fan on the planet adores Jürgen Klopp. Um, obviously, and there's a, there's a, a lot of reasons for that. I, I think we don't need to go into too much detail. We all know what they are. But just the main question is, why now? Why is the documentary now? Why did you focus on doing it and bringing it out to, at this period? So, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a practical answer and there's a romantic answer. So the practical answer is that 12 months ago, I was bouncing around our office saying to everyone, my God, we need something for during the World Cup, you know. Uh, and Fuad, uh, Fuad Hassan, who's directed the documentary, a couple of months later, after I've been doing everyone's editing for ages, said he had, he had a certain idea around Jürgen and looking at Jürgen's career. And Fuad's why now is the more romantic answer, which is because it's seven years at Liverpool. So it's this idea of looking at what he's done thematically. So it's seven years at Mainz, seven years at Dortmund and seven years at Liverpool. And what similarities are there within there and what differences are there within there and how do you tell that story? Uh, and then that sort of took pace more and more. And obviously we're, we're working on the planning of it, not quite the execution of it in terms of shooting it, but the planning of it as last season begins to, you know, come to a crescendo and you you begin to wonder whether or not Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool could win a quadruple. And within that, Jurgen himself seems really, really important. He's actually, you know, I mean, obviously he's the football manager, but what I mean is it's him who has the energy around Brentford. It's him who normally when managers are asked about quadruples, they they, they give you all the reasons why it'll never happen. Uh, but Jurgen's attitude was, well, it's going to be hard, but let's go for it because what else are we doing? Um, and being able to sort of look into where that energy comes from and, and, and how that energy demonstrated itself in other places is what really, really appealed. And then from there, the thing spiralled. Um, you know, we try to work with loads and loads of trust at the Anfield Wrap where we can, and, and you know, we backed through ads to, to do a good job. And before I know where, where I am, really, he's got 35 interviews lined up and ended up going to Germany four times. It was never really budgeted for, but we, we thought, well, we'll back him because, you know, we can see the quality of what's going on and the thought of what's going on, and, and we end up with what you've seen so far, which is the first episode in a very Anfield rap way. You can't watch episode two because it's not finished yet. Uh, it's out on Monday, but they're cutting it together right now. And and I, I was having a conversation with Fu this morning about the run, uh, the the sort of the, the the overall thematic arch for for episode three. Not to give too much away, you know, we've got the footage and they're pulling it together, and they've got an overarching idea as to what's in each episode and how it's going to work, but those bits of storytelling are still being worked on. They're still very, very live indeed. So I haven't seen episode two yet, let alone anyone else. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, just, uh, I mean, I, it's, a, it's a great, I mean, the, it's a, the first episode, it feels like I'm just sort of reviewing Star Wars after watching episode four, <laughs> which is a bit, which is a bit weird, but you know. Well, some people uh, did. <laughs> <laughs> if you're old enough, then yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's. I mean, you've alluded to it there, just like how much of a, a Herculean task is it to sort of like to put together? Because it must be like just so much footage, like, you know, interviews in, in different languages, just like, just how... How hard has it been to put together so far? It's been a lot of work, but the key part of it is that when you you know when you sort of take a project like this, firstly it's backing people 
both in terms of the people that you're going to interview, you've got to back contributors at all times, but it's also backing our people, you know, back the the guys who've been doing film work for us now. You know, if, you, if you, we go all the way back to 2017, 2018, we've been filming things at the Anfield Wrap and backing them to firstly be able to do that to a certain standard and then raise that standard, which is what they've done. Uh, and then the second thing, which is, you know, really important in terms of, in terms of backing the process is trusting that we've all learned storytelling. Uh, you know, we've all got storytelling instincts. We've got those storytelling instincts because of the work we've been doing at the Anfield Rap. You know, it's a, we, 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 we anyway right now do a, a proxy, well, certainly Jordan, whilst there's two, two, three games a week, you know, we're doing 10 videos a week and, and 12, 14 podcasts a week, some weeks. When you think about that for a second, it's obviously it's a lot of work, but it's also a massive ground and you get to know what you're about. You get to know what works. You get to know what doesn't. So a key part of all of this really is, is, is backing our people and backing our experience to pull this together. What's been toughest really, in, in, and this is why, you know, even people who every day haven't been contributing to this documentary have been contributing to it, is because keeping the whole operation running where we're still doing those shows, Liverpool are playing, you know, two games every single week, playing every single midweek. And our customers, I'd like to hope, you know, the people who sign up on the app and who, who watch and, and listen to all the stuff won't have noticed the join. And we've been doing this at the same time underneath. And that's that's where the real Herculean effort is. But it's been everyone pulling together. That's not just Fuad, Jordan, Sam. You know, that's everyone, Ash. Everyone's been sort of pulling together around that to make that happen as smoothly as possible. So, you know, and there's other things around this as well. A couple of people have said they feel it's the sort of thing that could have been on Netflix. And that's, you know, it's really high praise and it's really generous. But the flip side of that is that if I take that, this to Netflix last March, even if I convince them to to do it, Fuad doesn't get to direct it. He may not even get to be first AD. But again, we want to back our people and give them opportunities. I'm really lucky. I, you know, I'm 41 years old and I work in an office full of broadly speaking young people in Liverpool City Centre. Um, but we've got those young people because we back them and we support them and we try to give them opportunities, not just in terms of the job itself, but the nature of what that job job is and what they can do. So Fuad's directing it and Jordan's editing it and Jordan's editing episode two right now. And Jordan's a really good editor, but he's never edited anything like this before. But we backed him to be able to do it. And we also backed him to know what Liverpool supporters want. Jordan himself isn't one. He's from Northern Ireland and he supports a team over there, Linfield. But he is here. He understands what Liverpool supporters want because he's been doing this job. And he's able to therefore pull this together, knowing that that's the essence of what of what the people want, and he can deliver it for them. Now, going back to the, the documentary as well, specifically, I mean, you were seeing Fuad's uh, travels have taken him through you know, Glatton, Frankfurt, Mainz, Dortmund, Liverpool, obviously places that are all that matter a great deal to Jurgen Klopp, and you know, specifically with his formative years. Um, I just wanted to get. The Anfield Raps and, and your perspectives specifically about sort of the parallels drawn sort of between these places in terms of you know, the fan bases, the financial circumstances, particularly between you know Liverpool and Dortmund, um, the status as a form of sort of big power being in need of rejuvenation, um, and I suppose the role it's, it has in, in keeping Klopp in Liverpool specifically extending his contract because obviously this is the longest yeah. he's held a job, so Liverpool holds a certain attraction above all else. I think the Liverpool thing is, Jürgen, you know, just to, in, the, in the most basic way, if we try to, and it's very important because this is what Klopp does himself all the time, to always place the humanity back into Jürgen Klopp because that's how Jürgen is, is a deeply sort of human person and he, and he very much sees the humanity in others, is that there wasn't another move. Like, I, I, I still think he might extend again, uh, to be honest, Jürgen. And the reason why is because if he doesn't do this, it's all but semi-retirement. It's the semi-retirement of international management. That's it. That's the decision he's making because he's not going to go 
he's not going to go and be the sort of manager who goes to a club where he's likely to only get two years. He's going to want to be the sort of manager who goes to a club where he gets to see it as a project and invest in a sense of place. And there's no others now left. And I don't mean that in a sort of dramatic way. Of course, there are others. But what I mean is he's already gone through the graduation process. There's a reason why both Klopp and Dortmund's time together becomes exhausted. And it's that he can't continually rejuvenate Dortmund over and over again because of the the, the the inherent sort of issues they've got with comp- competing with Bayern Munich and so on and so forth. I don't think he sees that at Liverpool. I think he sees Liverpool as a project that he can sort of repeatedly rejuvenate. And what would be the purpose of going anywhere else? The only place he could go theoretically that was bigger is arguably Real Madrid. And that's it. That's it. It's Real Madrid or nothing. But Real Madrid, the manager, is not central to everything, does not build the entire culture and does not sort of create a philosophy within there. That's not how Real Madrid operates. And it's not, not way, any way they've operated for a long, long time. So this is it. This is the biggest job of Jürgen's life. And I think that's the reason why he's he's stuck on for longer. And then there is the relationship between people and place. Mainz is, you know, Mainz, we now know Mainz is a football club, not least because of Jürgen Klopp and a little bit because of Wolfgang Frank. But it is because of Frank and Klopp that they absolutely put Mainz on the map. Then there's the Dortmund move. And Dortmund's, you know, that's absolutely fascinating. And as you say, it, it did have this sort of fallen giant aspect to it. But it's also got the biggest ground in Germany. So, you know, within there, you also know that it's so important to the people, you know, that that's the nature of what Dortmund is as a place. And he can buy into that. And then, you know, we know what we think is positive and exceptional about Liverpool, and he can buy into that as well. And there is, again, the similarities and differences between these places. Jurgen Klopp created Mainz as a footballing institution. As I say, Wolfgang Frank has a massive impact on that, on, on, on Jurgen Klopp. But it's Klopp who gets the energy of the place of Mainz into that ground. He doesn't need to do that in Dortmund, but he does need to rejuvenate, get corporate partners back. In episode two, you will hear about how he rang some himself, made those phone calls and said, you're going to see something. It's going to at least be something to see when I run Dortmund. And, you know, he, he had to rejuvenate in that way. And then when he gets to Liverpool, he doesn't have to build the idea of who Jurgen Klopp is because we're able to look at his trophy-winning successes at Dortmund. But he does still need to re-energise and reconnect a supporter base that was from a period that I think extends from the sale, say, of to Hicks and Gillette in 2007, all the way through to the exit of Brendan Rodgers, with peaks and troughs within there, I hasten to add, but which has just felt like it's taken a hell of a lot of blows, body blows. Um, and that's why, you know, one of the key moments of Jürgen's tenure remains. And at the time, there was some voices who pilloried it, is when he takes the players to the cop after the 2-2 draw against West Brom. That that was such a key moment for him and in, in how he viewed what he was trying to achieve at Liverpool. That, you know, the idea that the previous home game, I think it was, everyone walks out at 2 1 down against Crystal Palace. Jurgen says he's never felt so lonely in his life. We're in a similar situation against West Bromwich Albion with 15 to go. Everyone hangs on. The whole ground's absolutely mad because the West Brom players were putting in some terrible tackles. Everyone's up, everyone's on one. Origi gets a deflected 97th minute equaliser. And then there's the outpouring of, of emotion. And as I say, there was a lot of people, a lot of people I respect and admire, by the way, who talk and write about Liverpool, who said you shouldn't be doing this sort of thing after a 2-2 draw against West Brom. But Jürgen knew exactly what he was doing and why, but also knew the emotion of the moment. I've always laughed about the fact that the next home game we win, at the end, Lovren's desperate to come to the, the cop end. And Jürgen has to say to him, no, 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 mate, we're not doing that every week. It was just, I knew what I was doing last week, this week, don't worry about it so much. Um, and that's always been there and been present. And that's, that is a massive part of the story. And that was the job he had to do at Liverpool, which was a different job to what he had to do at Mainz and a different job to what he had to do at Dortmund. Speaking of uh, Dortmund and the ongoing story at Liverpool, if you don't mind, we just deviate quickly from the, uh, from the documentary. I know, I know, I know. Honestly. That's why he's the host. 
<laughs> but um, oh dear god earthquake um yeah no whilst we're on the topic of Dortmund of course you had an, an interview with Christian Falk um yep. Bundesliga transfer experts of course uh, very very good in his field and spoke of course about the one man on every Liverpool fan's lips which is Jude Bellingham um just to get your sort of points of view because I, I posed this sort of question to Pete yesterday um, and we were looking at sort of, you know, Liverpool's war chest. I think the understanding is Liverpool want to bring in at least two midfielders across the next two transfer windows. Um, but we don't know how the World Cup's going to further impact Bellingham's asking price. Um, there's the competition to consider with the likes of Madrid, Chelsea, Manchester City, so on, so so, so forth. Hypothetically, uh, in your opinion, you know, if it came down to it and you put in a position where Liverpool have to go, we have to spend all of this on Jude Bellingham, a phenomenal talent, um, not bringing a single other midfielder and just risk it for the next season, or alternatively forego Bellingham, bring in two, maybe three midfielders of lesser quality, lesser price. It's a difficult, it's a difficult question because I think obviously it puts us, depending on your point of view, in a difficult position in terms of our depth. But where, where would you be leaning towards? I am always, and listen, there's a couple of ex, there's been some extreme circumstances recently, but I am always amazed how many footballers, football supporters want their football clubs to have. And I think there's good reason for that because when it goes badly wrong, <coughs> as has happened to Liverpool this season, so you look at Liverpool this calendar year, Liverpool go through, I would argue, the first half of the calendar year, and I don't think they can find enough time on the pitch for a combination of James Milner, Curtis Jones, um, Harvey Elliott or uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain. So Oxlade-Chamberlain doesn't even feature from March onwards. He's in some match day squads, but he doesn't play a game. Doesn't get any time on the pitch whatsoever. He plays the league, the FA Cup sixth round, and you, you don't see him apart from that. The others that I've just named, you can also drop Taki Minamino in there as well to a certain extent. The point about this isn't what's the level of these players, although what I would point out is that the players I have named all get their opportunity to play against Southampton away and a part of a really good performance in a 2-1 win. But there is this thing, I think, where everyone's decided you need to have nine or ten centimetres. How many centimetres have Man City got? Man City have got the smallest squad in the league. Uh, now, they've got a squad that's unbelievably resilient and doesn't get that many injuries, and that's a bit of a separate conversation. They've also not, they don't play Jurgen Klopp-style football through the middle of the park. They look after the ball a little bit differently and they exert themselves in different ways, and that's also a fair point. But there is this, I think, this, this notion that if Liverpool don't do three footballers into the middle of the midfield who are at least worth 50 million quid next summer. They're absolutely kidding themselves. And I just don't think that stands up to any sort of degree of scrutiny whatsoever. One of the things that Christian Falk says is one of the reasons why Bellingham's really taken with the Liverpool project on top of the Jurgen Klopp stuff and all the other stuff is he can see exactly how he'll get loads and loads of games, which he can't may not necessarily be able to see at Madrid. Now we might say, well, that's a bit laughable. We've seen how good he is during the World Cup. He's a phenomenal player. He'd be brilliant to play for anyone. But he still wants to know. We have a real sense that he's going to get time on the pitch. Now, allow for Bellingham and then say, you're doing Bellingham, but you're going to do another midfielder of 60 million. And that midfielder will also surely want assurances that he's going to get time on the pitch. Liverpool's fourth highest earner, I think it is, before we add anyone else in, in amongst this conversation, is Thiago. Sixth or seventh highest earners are Fabinho and, and, and Henderson. We're all, I believe, excited by Harvey Elliott. Uh, you know, and, and there's a lot of Harvey Elliott chat. Uh, about what the footballer that it could be for Liverpool. All these footballers have got to play. So if you're asking me it's Bellingham or nothing, I'd say I'd take Bellingham. But the other part of this as well is that there appears to be a bit of this conversation where everyone's acting simultaneously like Keita Chamberlain and Milner are absolutely useless on the one hand. Uh, and on the other hand, is simultaneously acting as though they've all played 10 games so far this season as well. And we're going to lose them. So what on earth are we going to do? Where's the depth going to come from? 
basically I've contributed pretty much as much to Liverpool's league season so far as Naby Keita. Arguably a bit more because people like the podcasts. And <laughs> so if you lose Naby Keita from what's been our current reality and you replace him with Jude Bellingham, if you, let's say you just did that, you gave Chamberlain a new deal and you somehow convinced Milner to hang on and do 12, minute, 12 months more thankless running around the middle of midfield, would Liverpool be well better off? The answer is yes. Liverpool's underlying numbers at the minute are the third best in the league. They've had a bit of hard lines in some games, and they've actually not been not been great for a number of reasons, but mostly tactical slash performance based in a couple of others. And they've had the hangover of last season in Paris. So if you just next summer did Keiter out and, and, and Bellingham in, or Chamberlain out and Bellingham in, and you gave Naby Keiter another two-year extension, which I think Liverpool have missed the boat on, so don't get me wrong, would Liverpool be better? Yes. Obviously they would be. Markedly better. So I'd do, I'd do Bellingham because I think he, he could prove to be you know, the one thing I think City have had over us for 10 years, I don't think it's just Jordan Klopp's tenure, for 10 years, 12 years, is I think they've had the best midfielder in the country. In that first, it was Yaya Torre, and then it was Kevin De Bruyne. So the the midfielder is most able to to change the way in which a football match is going. They've had that, and we haven't. And not just that we haven't, but all the other football teams haven't. There's a period of time where you can have an N'Golo Kante chat. But apart from that, pretty much the, the league's defining midfielder has been Yaya Torre or big Kev De Bruyne. That's it. That's the way in which it's worked. So I think the idea of Liverpool having one of them is good. But there's this other thing as well, which is everyone's decided that the players have got to be 50, 60 million quid. Lema is going on a free next summer. Asensio's just played games for Spain in the World Cup. He's available on a free and he can play in the front line or he can play in the midfield line. He scores a lot of goals from midfield. Uh, Lehmer, it looks as though he might be going to Bayern Munich, but, you know, Liverpool can sort that out. If Chamberlain, Keita and Milner all move on, I think that's a combined wage saving for Liverpool of about £370,000 a week from published figures. Well, that's money that you can use to go and get another footballer with. And then within that as well, you've got the idea that you've got young players knocking around. We all like Bacevic. We all like Elliot. Some like Jones. I think Jones gets a tough trot. Uh, but, you know, he's, he's, he's more than able to be a good squad player for Liverpool, I think it's fair to say. So I think the there's a thing that we do because we react as humans, but we decide that a position needs major surgery. Last summer, when two summers ago, sorry, the summer of 2021, when we'd all felt that centre-half had become a crisis point and it needed major surgery. Liverpool just bought Canate. Didn't buy anyone else. And suddenly, you know, there was times where it felt like either Matip or Gomez or Canate himself weren't getting enough time on the pitch. There was only Van Dijk who arguably was. The others had to share the appearances. It just doesn't take much to change it, I think. And I think that we obviously all... We'd all love, I'd love Liverpool to have 12 world-class midfielders who are all vying for position and who are always, therefore, really, really fresh. But then the manager, if he was here, would say, yeah, but they wouldn't have any rhythm because you just keep chop- chopping and changing them every single game. The only other thing I think is, I think there might be a bit of an argument. Liverpool want to be more progressive with possession, I think, and they've tried to do that, changing the shape a little bit. So out of possession this year, Liverpool, at the start of the season, are getting close to something that looks a bit like 4-2-4. But what that becomes in practice is two centre-halves, two midfielders, and then the full-backs joining pretty much, and you end up with almost two two six. I wonder if there's a journey for Liverpool where they could play something that in possession is like two three five, two centre-halves, as it was for us, three midfielders, when it was Wijnaldum, Henderson, Milner, uh, Wijnaldum, Henderson, uh, Fabinho uh, in there, even you know to an extent, uh, Wijnaldum, Henderson, sorry, uh, Henderson, Fabinho and Thiago. So two three five, and then the full-backs go. I wonder if there's an argument that you play two, three, five, but you want all of the three to be able to be really creative. 
So you maybe look at getting someone who's better at progressing the ball from the number six position. You look at someone like Bellingham, you've got Thiago. So you end up with three footballers across the middle of the pitch and who are genuine footballers. So you end up with more of a ball-playing number six than a destructive lighthouse number six, which is what Fabinho is. I think Fabinho at his best, by the way, is, is a really good ball player. But I think we've seen less of that when he's been out of form this season. So is there a journey there where you could basically say, yeah, the way we're going to be more creative isn't by playing one more clear attacking midfielder. It's that we're going to have three midfielders who are capable of doing it all so that we can show games up as we go a little bit more. And I wonder if that's a journey to go on. So don't get me wrong, there's things in there. So is there a point, you know, if they'd have bought Chouameni, the thing I've always wondered about, if they'd have bought Chouameni was is, where would he have played? Who would he have played next to? What would the relationship have been? And how would that have led to the side remodeling? Because the thing we don't sort of talk about is hypothetically it's possible. I'm not saying it, I'm not saying I know anything, but it's possible that if they'd have bought Chouameni, they might have sold Fabinho or might have thought we'll give Fabinho one more year and then sell him on because he's an asset within the squad. And if they did want to play play with three more creative type midfielders, more midfielders who can be sixes and eights at once, moment, which I don't think you could describe Fabinho as. Three who can do it all. Bellingham's a six and eight and a ten. Thiago in a different way is a six and eight and a ten. You know, Harvey Elliott's an eight and a ten. Um, Carvalho, if he plays there, is an eight and a ten. Jones, it's still not one of the reasons why people aren't sure what to make of Jones. They're still not sure. Henderson's a six and an eight. Milner's a six and an eight. It might be that they might want to say, can we have three? who can do it all across the middle of the park. And then there's a bit of an argument to maybe move Fabinho on in that context, especially as you can still cash in on him. But to answer your overall question, I'd just do the great one, the potentially absolutely league-dominating one, and you'll solve all the problems later on. And if your question is actually, would you rather do three at 30, 35 million average or do one at, at 110? and work stuff out and take a couple of chances on either free transfers, young players, or risks, I'd do the one at 110 and, and, and take a, a few chances elsewhere and see who's out of contract, who can you get in a Brighton-esque way from Ecuador, who before you know where they are is absolutely brilliant, but you've only paid 8 million quid for them, so on and so forth. Can you do one of them? And it's interesting to me, someone tweeted, I can't remember, one of the, one of the transfer journalists tweeted about the idea Liverpool are looking at doing Bellingham and maybe two South America, uh, South American players. Mm-hmm. And everyone saw that as, do, do they mean the nationality South American, or do they mean literally from South America? And one of the things the Brexit thing does is the idea of buying from Europe as a, as, as a positive, because you've not got to worry about the EU status of players because you're in the EU, is, well, but if we can get, like, for instance, if we'd have bought Saicedo when, when Brighton buy him for whatever price Brighton pay them, right now we'd all be laughing our heads off. But they could also get a work permit for them. You can now get work permits for those players a little bit easier, but it's harder to get work permits for some European players. So is there an argument to sort of go to the source a little bit more, do Bellingham and maybe roll the dice on two or eight million, one of whom might be great, one of whom might just be a bit of a nightmare and play some League Cup games and then we farm them off? That's a very long yeah. answer. I think he will have a fall yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) now one thing you saw you're touching on then as well you saw when Tottenham sold bailed I mean I think they went for the the five player model I don't think it it worked very well for them did they so you know I think a lot of people would be siding with the fact of going break the bank on um, on Bellingham and maybe while we're we're talking about transfers I was gonna say arguably arguably it was when we when we sold Suarez um, a lot of that money went into just you know Basically buying half of Southampton, so yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a well, situation though. there. <laughs> yeah, but... yeah. Well, I think we 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 were going to ask it about um, Klopp and impossible future jobs and what he could do, but I think you kind of touched on that before. So maybe if we're staying on transfers, well, obviously we don't have a sporting director come the end of the year. 
is maybe Klopp looking at becoming a bit more involved in that? Do you reckon we need someone to uh, replace a Julian Ward, or can we go back to the old style of you know, when Shankly used to pick his men, and maybe Klopp can do that now? Go and name his go no, and name no. his few players. What what would you prefer we did? No, I think I think you'll always have. I think Liverpool will want that structure where there will be someone in as a sporting director. It wouldn't. It's perfectly valid. Thinking about Jurgen's life, you know, Jurgen's life since the age of. 18, 19, as in the documentary, has, has been basically spent on training grounds. So if, if Jürgen, at the age of 56, I think he is now maybe a bit older, if Jürgen, I should probably know that, if, if Jürgen you know, feels as though he wants to do a bit more stuff that's office-based, leave some bits and pieces to others, you know, that's exactly the journey that, for instance, Alex Ferguson went on, uh, became more of a general manager type. I think there's, there's room for that, but what I do think is that Liverpool will and will always want, I think now to have, the idea that there's different departmental responsibilities and one of those departmental responsibilities is obviously whoever's in charge of recruitment. Now, Klopp always said from the minute he came in, well, I'm I'm in charge ultimately. Like, I sign off on everything. That's the way this will work. But I'll listen to people, I'll listen to voices. And it seems to me as though, for one reason or another, uh, Klopp will be listening to maybe a, a few different voices as we get into the, the, the second half of this season and into the start of into the summer and then the start, start of the season that follows. But, I, you know, there's... Being Jurgen Klopp, I'm sure right now, and having been Jurgen Klopp for many a year, I'm sure because of the the nature of how involved he was at everything at Mainz and Dortmund, I'm sure he's already feels like he's working sixteen hours a day. He, he he almost certainly will not want something else whacked onto his list. So I think that there will be someone who heads that up from a Liverpool point of view. Hopefully they'll be good. Um, it might be that Liverpool feel as though they need to they need to go, need to have gone into a, a different direction, but it might be that they don't. It might be that they want to get different sorts of data analysts in. It might be that they want to get similar ones, but a couple of people want to move on. It, it's also perfectly valid to sort of use the Ian Graham example that he's done what he's done at Liverpool there for years, and you sort of get to you know you get to want to have a different job. For a period, there might be some other stuff in there. You you know someone literally the fellow in accounts might do your head in. Uh, and you might have decided, well, I could just do with a break from that, and you feel as though it's a good time to move on because you're highly rated within the industry you work in. For these people, it is a job, it is a workplace, and I think that for us, it's a passion, and you know, we we're the lucky ones, really, more than they are. But it does feel a little bit like, you know, in in a bit of a way, how we end up dividing all this up. I think Liverpool thought last season would be more transitional than it was. I think if you think about the start of the season when Elliot's playing a lot of games, and then he gets the injury. If you think about the journey the season went on, where you know across the the weeks, you you know we don't go into that season trying to win a quadruple. We go into every season theoretically trying to win a quadruple, but not trying to win a quadruple. And then all of a sudden we hit, we get the other side of Afcon, and we've got a final on the horizon, a pretty nice cup draw, and other things have gone quite nicely for us in the FA Cup, a pretty nice last sixteen Champions League draw, and City just go and drop points on a Monday night at Crystal Palace. And I think Liverpool were ready for it to be a little bit of a transitional season, maybe a season where the last four or five league games, you're guaranteed second or third, you're going to hopefully push on in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden it becomes, no, you can do the impossible. And I think that's something we've not really allowed for. And I think if you look at, for instance, the journey they might... So, you know, in that realm where City are out of sight, maybe in the second half of the season, you do see more tactical experimentation as we've seen at the start of this. Maybe you do see more Elliot. Maybe you do see more Jones. Maybe you do see more Chamberlain because Liverpool are resting people for the midweeks because the, the European challenge is the main thing that's in there. But instead, they get the opportunity to do something no one else has ever done and they commit to it wholeheartedly. So I think in all of this, you know, when we try to think about what, what they do or don't want as a job and, and the direction of travel that they're moving in, 
it might well be that Paris, for a variety of other reasons as well, including off-the-pitch stuff, is sort of the end of something, and this has been the start of something new. And then if you do work at the club, you might think to yourself, well, maybe it is a good time for me to move on because I was part of the thing that ended at Paris. This is now the start of something new, and maybe we won't see all of this to fruition in terms of league, full league titles and European Cups until 2025. But I've got a job, I've got kids, I've got a, you know, I've got a partner, I've got whatever, I've got a pension. And I might just think, well, I'll go somewhere else and start something else. I've already done this one once. Do I need to do another one? And I think we need to allow that sort of human response. I think that Jürgen himself would allow that human response. And rather than go, oh my God, has everything fallen apart? It may well be just something that happens in a project-based workplace where people then move on once they feel as though, well, I've completed that project. What's next for me in my life and my opportunities? Yeah. Well, paying tribute to the spirit of Jurgen Kopp, I believe uh, <laughs> our very own Pete has a round of questions for us. Yeah, I think Anil, are you familiar with the the Pete quiz? I've I've, I've, I've been briefed. You've been briefed. Oh, excellent. I'll <laughs> well, well, be doing revising the quiz. Yeah. Go on. Uh, we've got graphics and everything. Uh, right, so, simple one, quick one. I know we, uh, no one wants to hear me talk on this bit, so it's just a simple quiz. It's about Jürgen Klopp, your documentary is, so, so is this one. Five questions. I'm not trying to catch it out, so don't okay. worry. I'm going for some maybe more silly ones, so don't worry. So you can't be I'm not trying to make you look bad. So That's all right. Got I'm, I'm used to it. <laughs> have you got a pen and paper? Is that all right? And then we'll go through the answers at the end. I'll just ask you question one to five. And I do okay. have a tiebreaker. So don't worry if this all gets too if it all gets tied up at the end. But anyway, so question number one, without further ado, how many league titles has Jurgen Klopp won in his entire managerial career? So over all the clubs he's managed, how many league titles has he won? Break them down. Don't say them out loud. Play along at home by not saying that out loud. <laughs> and um, if you're ready for the next next question, here's a good fact for you: both Jurgen Klopp's dad, Norbert, and son Mark have played football, but in which position did either of them play on the football pitch? They both weren't at a high level. I think his dad was only amateur, and Mark was like in the lower leagues of Germany. But they both had a specific position they played. And I won't just take like midfield up front. You've got to do like an actual position, like centre-back, right-back, goalkeeper, centre-mid, defensive-mid, striker, wing, something like that. Okay, that's question two. Question number three. In feet and inches... How tall is Jürgen Klopp? And as a helpful hint for you, it's roughly the same height as three German shepherds. If that helps, if you know your German shepherd facts. <laughs> Feet and inches, see the way it's German as well, because he's German. It's all, on, it's all on theme here today. Feet and inches, how tall is Jürgen Klopp? Ready, question four. On the 1st of July 2016, the first players in Klopp's stewardship left the club on the same day. There were six different players who left the club when the contract came to an end. Can you name any of them? 1st of July, 2016. There were six different players. Just give me one name, and if you're right, you get a point. If you get all six, you still get a point, but you'll feel very proud of yourself. We ready for question five? Yeah. There we go, last one. Yeah, can Klopp has reached nine cup finals as Liverpool manager. But in which two competitions has he reached more than one final? So, obviously, on more than one occasion, he was in the cup final. Which two competitions were he? Nine finals in total since he's arrived. 
We're actually quiz. Let me know when you're ready to go for the answers. Two, two, or, two or more. Fa- two or more. So finals. yeah, he's been in more. Yeah, two. Wait, one or yeah, two or yeah. more finals in two separate competitions. Which one's win? Okay. Okay. Ready for the answers? Yeah. 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 Okay. Right. So first one. Question one. How many league titles has Klopp won in his managerial career? Shout it out. Three. Yeah, three. Three is correct. Yeah. Farrell, three. Rick, three. I'm, rel- I'm reluctant three. to give three. answers. <laughs> Next one. <laughs> Question two. Reasons. Question two. You can tell me either Norbert or Mark. Where do they play? Guess or if you know. I don't know I'm what our goalkeeper. Left wing goalkeeper. Farrell. Holding midfielder. One of you is correct. Norbert was a goalkeeper. Hey. <laughs> Mark was a right back. So just one point over to Neil, taking the taking the lead and banishing the empire of the cop. <laughs> um, question three: Feet and inches. How tall is Jurgen Klopp? Six foot four. He's six two. After six three. Oh, they're all close. One of you is right. According to Wikipedia, which we all know is always correct, six foot three. Rick. Hey. <laughs> you see, I. I think, and not just on Jürgen, I think that all footballers, like wrestlers, in put in different ways, all footballers published heights are lies. Yeah. <laughs> all of them. They're all lies. <laughs> I think they managed, that they managed them once when they're like 17. Uh, and then that's guess. the height of the footballer forever. It should just yeah. say just tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a big, a big lad. There was a period yeah. of time, I think, when like, Wikipedia had Henderson's height at five foot eleven, and I'm six, I'm six foot slash six foot one, that sort of area. And I met Henderson once, and I was like, all right. <laughs> you must be massive. No, you're six foot three, that's what it is. <laughs> so, um, on the 1st of July 2016, six different players left. Do you want to say whoever you put, and I'll give you all six? Torrey. Colo, yeah. Yeah, Colo Torrey. <laughs> Rick. Yeah, that was five, I, five, I, yeah. I, I missed the question, so I, I, I didn't put anything uh, down. I was still thinking about that. 2016, <laughs> wasn't it? You said. Yep. I, can't, oh, I, feel, oh, I feel like I'm all Connor Randall? This, but, but... Connor Randall won? Yeah. Yep. Farrell said name. I'll was, give you was, a point was, on was Benteke one? Benteke was not one. Does so on Leo got one. So I'll give you the full list was Jose Enrique, Colo Torre, Jordan Rossiter. Managan Abarada, Jao Texera, Jerome Sinclair, and Sammy Jessel. The start ah, of the League Cup Sam game against Swansea. Oh. Um, but yeah, so I think Neil's got the point there. So it's three to Neil, two to Rick, one to Farrell. And we go into the last question. Jürgen Klopp has reached nine Cup finals as a Liverpool manager. In which competitions has he been to more than one final? Pretty easy, this one. Champions League Champions and League, League Cup. Champions League and League Cup, isn't it? Yeah, Champions League and League Cup. Full house. Everyone's right. The Anfield rap. One empire of the cop nil. Absolutely <laughs> embarrassing, lads. Go upstairs, tell the firm they'll be delighted. Top top. <laughs> well, that has been the peak quiz. First, my eardrum. Um, right, we come full circle back to the documentaries. Just lastly. Part one is out now. There are four parts remaining. Neil, you, you told us you've not seen the remaining parts, but you, I've I, seen a quarter. I assume you've got a good a good idea of what's to come. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, this is Pete's question. I've nicked this one. Um, but how did you firstly go about getting in touch with all his old coaches and teammates and mates? And did everyone love him, or is there some bad blood to come yet? 
No, everyone loves him, and that's why you know it's great that we're unofficial in a way because you know genuinely we can say that from an unofficial perspective. Everyone's <laughs> only got hugely positive things to say about him. Now I'm sure that not everyone he's ever met, obviously, but people coming forward and doing the documentary, you know, they all love him to pieces. I love the the older people, the people who obviously had an influence on him because I love that when they with the talking in the first episode and they still come back in other episodes where you can like you can see how how Jurgen's like them rather than. There's a lot of people who become like Jürgen, but Jürgen's like them. It's like, you know, I really like that about them. And they've been brilliant. And we just reached out really to everyone we could think of in every single phase we could think of and, and had huge amounts of positivity back. And, and, and because people want to talk about him because he's, firstly, he's, he's an important sporting and cultural figure. But also, everyone likes him. And, they, they, you know, they want, to, they want to pay tribute to him, pay homage to him and talk about him. And everyone also feels a real connection to him and they want to talk about that connection. So, so that's great. And then, yeah, episode one is, is, is done and people can see it. It's on YouTube now. Please do watch it. And we are delighted and we are proud of it. And then episode two and three will be out on our app. Uh, episode two on Monday the 12th and episode three on Monday the 19th. Uh, the second episode is about the blueprints. So what he first does or did when he arrived in each of these three clubs and where there's a bit of influence around that and then episode three is uh around the idea of the building blocks of the journey so it has actually we haven't confirmed the title yet uh which is how sort of we're flying through this but this real sense of how for instance he pulled his recruitment pieces then into place and then how the journey in each of these places it, it was never all unbelievably plain sailing you know there was ups and downs and how he had to learn a thing or two and had to learn something from from some defeats so yeah, that's the the journey, therefore, of the building blocks and, and how he amassed all of that. What's what episode three is going to be about? As I say, episode two is on the blueprints and how he works. And, you know, there's some fantastic stuff in that. And, uh, you know, in terms of in Mainz, in Dortmund and in Liverpool. And episode one is out. And it is, you know, it is about the challenge that he faced in, in each of these three places. And it's almost got a subtitle that you can't see on the subtitle, which is the challenge and the challenger. So the first 10 minutes doesn't even mention Jürgen once, but then we spend, it details what Mainz, Dortmund and Liverpool were each like. And then we get 10 minutes on Jürgen, Glatten, Frankfurt, his background and the nature of him. And then we find out the moment he's going to go into each of these three uh, football clubs. And so it's the challenge and Jürgen is the challenger. Well, Neil, thank you very much. That was very comprehensive. And I think I speak for <laughs> everyone here when I say we're very much looking forward to the, the rest um, of the documentary as when it comes out. Uh, thanks again to our special guest, Rick Elliott, uh, the Anfield Raps, Neil Atkinson, for both coming on to the Empire of the Cop podcast. Of course, we've had Peter Kenny Jones, myself, uh, Farrell Keeling. If you haven't seen Jurgen part, Jurgen, part one, The Challenge, go do it. It's phenomenal. The work that has gone into it is absolutely bonkers. We've been the Empire of the Cop. Take care.